Thank you for choosing this Dream Center podcast. Don't forget to subscribe for further updates. Um, this morning's message really started in my spirit during the week of prayer and fasting. And one of the five objectives of that week was to pursue an outbreak of the Holy Spirit leading us towards developing an individual and corporate maturity. But then on the last night, on the Friday night, Pastor Tony said something and my spirit just caught it. He said, we can no longer just enter into Zion anymore. We have entered, but now we are to be matured in the dimensions of Zion. This is the next phase that the church is about to go through. He will mature us in his ways. And so that's my title this morning, Maturing in Zion. I wanted to know what is required for us to be matured in Zion and why do we need to be. And immediately, God started to speak to me and challenge me about some of the key dynamics that we need to establish in our lives for maturity to be evident. And so this morning, I want to share some of those challenges with you. We're all on the same path to maturity, but we're all at different levels, yes? But we still all need a material of who we are this morning, a greater measure of the three dimensions of maturity that I'm going to speak about this morning. These three dimensions of of maturity all have equal importance. And so I can't say that this one should come first and that one should come second because they all dovetail together in equal measure, as you will see. And all of these three dimensions must be working in our lives if we're to come to uh, the level of maturity so that we can finish our assignment. The reason that God wants us to be mature is that He needs to be able to call on us at any time, anyone in this room at any time, so that we can further advance the kingdom of God. That's his purpose, amen? Many churches never mention maturity. All they mention is numbers. As long as we've got numbers, as long as we've got a lot of people there, and that in a lot of churches, activity is always mistaken for progress in the church. But they're all outer signs of success. You can have a fantastic worship team. You can have 100 people up there singing. You can see five to 10,000 people and look like you've got it all going on on the outside. But they're outer signs of success. Maturity is building the Christ and his kingdom inside the people. It's not about numbers, amen? So what three dimensions do we need to develop in our lives in order to mature? So in no particular order, the first one is sacrifice. The definition of sacrifice means to give give up something for something else of greater measure or things consumed on the altar. To give up something for something else of greater value are things consumed on the altar. So sacrifice costs us. If there is no cost, there is no sacrifice. And David knew the principle of sacrifice. He said, I will not sacrifice to my God anything which costs me nothing. 
If we do not learn to sacrifice some things, there's going to be no change in our lives and therefore no transformation and no testimonies. Turn with me to Romans 12, please, verse 1. Familiar scripture. But, I, you know, God's really opened my eyes to this scripture. Being a worshipper, being a person who loves to worship God, I thought I had this scripture down, but God's really given me some new revelation on this. Romans 12 verse 1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The Amplified Version says that you have to make a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all your members and faculties, in other words, spirit, body and soul as a living sacrifice, holy, devoted and consecrated to God. So it's everything that is within you has to be devoted to him. Now, we've, we've killed the myth in this church that worship is about singing songs. Worship is a lifestyle. It's not the interlude before the sermon. It's not something that gets us worked up so we'll feel a bit better about listening to the word. God says we have to offer ourselves. It's a decisive dedication that you have to make to lay yourself on the altar. Living sacrifices. I've often had a a bit of a problem with that because it's a contradiction in terms. If you're a sacrifice, you're dead. So how can we present ourselves as living sacrifices? This means it's not a one-off deal. It's something that we daily have to do. It means I have to place myself on the altar every day. This is my reasonable act of worship. The trouble is, I get up in the morning, I don't know if you do, I'm busy getting up for work, getting ready, and I stand there and I'm saying, oh God, this is the day that the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it, Lord, I praise you, I love you, I thank you, and I start giving him some praise and worship. And there I am, place myself on that altar, Lord, I just give this day to you, you be over my life today and everything I say and do, but by the time I've got to work, and three motorists have cut me up, And I forgot the umbrella and I get soaked getting from the car park to the building. And within seconds of me walking in, my boss gives me a deadline that even she knows it's impossible for me to make. Then I've crawled right off the altar. And I want to say and do some things that I shouldn't. And the flesh has started to rise up again. And that's when I have to get up off the floor, place myself back on the altar because I've made a decision that I am going to give my life to God, the one who gave so much for me. It's a daily walk. I have to constantly sacrifice my will for his in order that my life is a holy and pleasing offering. This is our act of worship. In Luke 7, I love this story. We read of the woman with the alabaster jar who worshipped Jesus in such a beautiful way. She was waiting for him when he arrived at Simon's house. And as she enters the house, she's totally focused on him. She will let nothing distract her. 
She ignores all the looks of contempt. You know, I can imagine her kind of sliding in the house behind him with her head down so nobody sees her. And she ignores all the dirty looks. She, she ignores all the comments of, you know what she does for a living? I can't believe they've let her in here. What's she doing here? And she makes her way straight to him. She kneels before him and she cries at his feet and she takes the only thing in her life that is of any value and she breaks open the jar and she pours the perfume over his feet. She doesn't say one word. She doesn't sing a song to him. This was her pure act of worship. She sacrificed everything she had to kneel at his feet. This is true worship. That is a sacrifice. In Luke 14, verse 25, it says that a large crowd was following Jesus. And the large crowds followed him everywhere he went. The crowd was made up of all kinds of people. He knew that some were fully committed to following him. Some were really enthusiastic. And some were just thinking about it. They were mildly interested. They'd come to have a look at the show and see... Who this Jesus is that everybody's talking about. And he knows this. And he turns around and he says to them, he stipulates the cost of following him there and then. The sacrifice that they would have to make. In Luke 14 verse 27, he says, If anyone does not carry his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. So there's the cost right up front. He says... Supposing one of you wants to build a tower, will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees him will ridicule him, saying, this is the fellow who began to build and was not able to finish. Or supposing a king is about to go to war against another king, will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. And right there is where we compromise often our faith. We compromise because we don't want to come up against some stuff. So we dilute our faith and we we make a pact with the world. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Now, I can imagine the crowd thinking, why is he trying to put us off? He wants followers. So why is he turned around and said this to us? But he knew that in the crowd, there were many people at all different levels of commitment. He wanted people who had counted the cost and that would lay everything down. Jesus wasn't looking for a crowd. He was looking for disciples. Amen. The first month I became born again, I lost my best friend. And we'd been, to, we'd been friends for quite a long time when our children were younger. And she went to church every Sunday. She professed to be a Christian. And all, all, all of a sudden, I got born again, and I was on fire, and I couldn't stop talking about Jesus, and it poured out of me. I'm talking about people in the church, and it must have really aggravated her. Because at some point, I don't know whether it embarrassed her, I don't know um, whether it was her lack of commitment that I'd highlighted because I was talking about Jesus, but she said to me, there are two things you should never speak about in the home. One is politics 
and the other is religion. They're private and I don't want to talk about them, so keep it to yourself. And because I wouldn't shut up, that's not like me, is it, girls? Because I wouldn't shut up and I, kept, I was on fire for God, I was all out for God, I kept talking about it, so she stopped coming. It made her uncomfortable and it challenged her. So I paid the cost of losing a friend because I, I had to lift the standard of Christ up in my life. We're meant to stand out. He says, we're not meant to blend in. In Philippians 2.12, it says, we are meant to stand out like stars shining in the universe as you hold out the word of life. We hold out the word of life in a dying world. How can we be witnesses to the transforming power of God if it isn't evidence, evident in our own lives? Luke 9.23 says, Jesus said to the crowd, if you want to be my follower, you must turn from selfish ways. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you yourself are lost or destroyed? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the son of man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory. The second dimension of maturity that we need to have in our lives is self-discipline or self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. Self-discipline means to restrain or to regulate. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. So self-discipline means we have to restrain ourselves. We have to regulate some things in our action and in our speech. And let's face it, we've all at one time or another found being in the flesh pleasurable. Yeah? But what we allow to entertain us will entertain our thoughts and ultimately our actions. Even the Apostle Paul said he was torn between two things. He said, I don't do the things I want to do, but I do the things that I don't want to do because there's another law at work in my body. So if Paul's going to struggle with these things between the flesh and the spirit, then we will too. Romans 8 verse 5 says, those who live, we've already heard that this morning, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The man of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. We have to have our minds set on what the Spirit desires. Three times in that scripture there, it mentions the mind because the mind is our battleground. If Paul struggled, so will we. That's why we need some discipline in our lives. And I've learned from bitter experience that I have to be careful what I read, what I watch and what I listen to. I have to be careful what I put in here. The books we read, the music we listen to, the clothes we wear, the TV programs we watch. I want to challenge you this morning. Does what you listen to, read or watch feed your flesh or your spirit? 
There is nothing wrong with good, wholesome entertainment. But we live in a culture where the media constantly bombards us with images on the internet, on TV, through newspapers, on billboards outside. And we've come to a point in society where there's not much that shocks us anymore. Because the the very things that murder and violence come straight into our living room via the TV. What once used to shock us doesn't anymore. So adultery, promiscuity and sexually explicit scenes are in many, many TV programmes. But we need to ask ourselves before we read or watch something, is this of the spirit or will it bring my flesh alive? If it excites the spirit, sorry, if it excites the flesh but does nothing for the spirit, then we need to discipline ourselves in that area. If it's of the spirit, it will inspire me to go further. If it's of the flesh, it will kill what God is doing in me. And that's exactly what I'm trying to protect. That's why I'm not watching and listening to these things. Because I'm trying to cultivate, not kill what God is doing inside of me. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, Dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So there's the challenge right there. Let us purify ourselves. The onus is on us. It's the off switch. It's close the book. It's turn the internet off. Whatever it is that we should not be watching, listening or speaking about, we need to close it down. I've started using this measuring stick. If I wouldn't watch it, read it, or say it in here in front of you, then I'm not going to do it at home in private. If I am ashamed of what I am watching or reading, or I'm cringing a bit thinking, oh, I don't know if, then I shouldn't be doing it. That's the measuring stick that I'm using. Being self-disciplined always, sorry, also means... Being responsible with that which is given to you. So I want to challenge all of us this morning, myself included, and say, what do you do with the word that is given to you? We spoke about the cost before, and the pastor or whoever's talking up here pays the price to lay time aside and to study the word and to bring the now word of God to the church. And the cost that you and I must pay is to take that word and work it out in our lives. We all lead busy lives, but we must take what God is giving to us personally or corporately and water and develop that seed. Sometimes I don't feel as if I have time in my life for me. I'll be really honest. And the last, the last couple of months just seem to be getting more hectic and more hectic. So I've had to prioritise some things. I've had to say no to a few things. And I've had to maybe not watch that programme on the TV to get that time with God. That's disciplining the t- myself and the time that I have. It says here, uh, turn with me to Hebrews 5. Verses 8 to 14, please. This scripture describes the spiritual immature, immature perfectly. I'm going to, I'm reading from Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, but I'm going to start at verse 8 to give it some context. 
So the author here is speaking to Christians and he says, even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then the heading of that chapter, the next bit says, warning against falling away. So he's talking to the spiritually immature. He says, there is much more we'd like to say about this. I'd like to tell you more about God and how he works and the order of Melchizedek. But it's difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you all over again the basic thing about God's word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So not only is he saying, I can't explain these things to you because you're spiritually immature. He says, you've got no discernment. He said, you don't even know the difference between right and wrong because you're not feeding yourself on the right stuff. And I totally identify with the author here because one of the things that absolutely frustrates me when I'm teaching in school is that I have to keep going over and over and over the same stuff. And some of my students will say to me, oh, but miss, it's babyish this. We did this in primary school. And I'll say, well, why am I not seeing it in your work then? Because they're not listening. They're not hearing what I'm saying. They're not putting it into practice in their work. Whereas there are other students who listen, apply it to their work and move up to the next level. And this is what the author is saying in this scripture to the church. He says, we can't move on because firstly, you don't listen. And secondly, you never work it out in your lives until, so there's no progress. We have to keep going back over and over and over the basics. When in fact, you should be taking your degree now, but we're still using, we're still going back to full stops and commas. I was reminded that Chris prophesied to the church at the end of July that the church needs to get ready for a diet change. As God is going to release new food to us. Do you remember that? Then that what we'd been receiving was good, but that what God was going to give us was new food. And this was also prophesied to Pastor Tony in Malaysia. So another reason we need to be able to mature is to be able to partake of this new food. It's not milk that's on its way, it's new food. Paul uses the analogy of the disciplined Christian life as being like an athlete in training. He says, don't you realize that everyone, in every race, only one person gets the prize, so run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what I want it to do. 
And Paul is saying here that the Christian life means hard work, training, self-control. It means disciplining ourselves like an athlete. Athletes just can't go and eat whatever they want. They have to discipline themselves to eat certain foods and discipline themselves not to eat other foods like chocolate, which is one of my favorite foods. So you you can't go to jogging twice a week for five minutes and expect to run to win the London Marathon. You have to put some training and discipline in place for a long time. No discipline seems hard at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And what surprised me when I was um, looking about self-discipline, you'd think that the opposite word, if we didn't have any discipline, would be self-discipline. But the antonym or the opposite word for for self-discipline is chaos. So if we don't have some self-discipline, instead of reaping a harvest of righteousness and peace, the word says that we'll reap chaos in our lives if we don't have some self-discipline. The third dimension that we have to have to reach maturity is obedience. It's defined as dutifully complying with the commands orders or instructions of one in authority. It's the one thing that Israel constantly struggled with was obedience to God because they were absolutely frightened to death. They used to say, we didn't want to get too close to him. Send Moses, you go. You go and have a word with him and come back and tell us what he said because they, didn't, they feared him. Now, it's good to have a healthy fear of God, but fear shouldn't be our motive for obeying God. It should be our love for what, who he is and for what he's done in our lives. Amen. I've been married to my husband for 37 years. I know. Deserve a medal. And we've been through some really, really tough times, but we've grown strong. I don't do things for him because I fear him. I do them because I love him. I don't do other things because I don't want to be separated from him, but it's still my love that motivates me. It's not fear. Jesus says in John fourteen twenty three. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. So that's a really strong word. In Luke 6, 48, he says, and he's talking to the church again. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my word and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. 
So he says, if you hear my words and do not do what I ask, why are you calling me Lord? So he's talking here, he's defining who the spiritually immature are and who the spiritually mature are. If you're mature, you listen and you put it into practice. You are immature, you don't listen to it and you just let it go. He says that when trouble comes, those who are spiritually immature tend to wither. And fade away because they've got no roots. They've got nothing to hold them there. When problems come, there is no foundation in place. And so they just get swept away by the pressure. But those who have listened and put them into practice will not collapse. They can't be shaken. It says the man and the woman who listens to me obey what they have heard. They have dug down deep. In other words, they've built on solid foundation. They've moved on from being fed on milk and they're eating solid meat. Whatever comes against them doesn't wipe them out because they're built on a strong foundation. They listen to what I say and put it into practice. When trouble comes, it doesn't wipe them out. They just deal with it and move on. They're not emotionally up one week and down the next. So I don't have to keep going back week after week and saying that I love them. They know I do. I don't have to keep laying the foundations over and over again because they've put some things in place to mature themselves. Why? Because God says, I've got a job for you to do. His mandate is for us to go out and disciple the nations. And he cannot do that with babies. Individually, we have to do the same. We have to dig down deep, read the word, take it into our lives and work it out. We've got to get some self-discipline in our life and build according to the pattern of the house. Amen? I gave testimony last time I preached about God asking me to do something that had a time limit on it. And I genuinely believe that as the water level is rising in this house, the time between us listening, hearing something and responding is getting less and less. God wants us to grow up. He doesn't want to keep repeating the same thing over and over again. He said, I've said it, do it and act on it. So in conclusion, the three dimensions we need to activate in order to mature, a sacrifice, self-discipline and obedience. It means that now we've crossed over, we've got to have some substance built on the inside of us in order to further advance the work of God. This new food that God is going to release to us will increase our capacity to carry what God is going to give to us. But we have to be mature enough to work it out and then take it out. It has to be worked out in us first. So once we've got these three dimensions activated and we've matured, we've got some maturity, what's the purpose of maturing in Zion? That was my question, my initial question to God when I heard Pastor Tony speak that night. And these are quite two personal things to me, but these help to set me on the path to attain a greater measure of maturity. And I'm not by any means saying that I've got that, but what I can say is there are a greater level than there was last year and there was a greater level than there was the year before that. So it's progress, it's on a journey. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 3, 13 and 14. 
Now in, uh, we, there was a group of us went to Malaysia in October, November 2009. And we came back and a couple of weeks later, Pastor Tony was going off to the Philippines to a conference to preach to some pastors there. And he gave this word in the house and something really hit my spirit and it made me rise up. And it says, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church. So in other words, if for some reason I cannot get home, this church cannot stop. If God forbid, Pastor Tony and the elders are not here for a couple of months, whatever it is that delays them or detains them, the work here cannot be stopped. It cannot even be maintained. Someone has to pick the baton up and take it to the next level. Amen. We still have a work task and assignment. We still have a destiny in this house, immaterial of who is here and who isn't. We need people in place who will step into the breach, but who are mature enough to advance the house and not just keep it ticking over. We've got to develop what's in here and what's in here and take it to a new level. One of the marks of maturity is legacy transferring to the next generation. It cannot finish with us. It has to be passed on in order that the work carries on. So there's a work to be done in the house and that requires us to go to a greater level of maturity. So the first thing that inspired me to go down that road was that word from 1 Timothy 3. If I am delayed, who will stand up? Who will stand up? Who will take the baton and who will rise up in maturity and set some things in place now so that if that ever happens, the house doesn't come to a standstill? And the second thing, which I've been hearing for many, many years, is get your passports ready. <laughs> yeah. In Acts 13, we see John Mark as an example of spiritual immaturity. Paul and Barnabas... Um, John Mark is Barnabas's cousin, are going on their first missionary trip to Cyprus. And they decide to take John Mark with them as their helper. And for whatever reason, it doesn't say, um, he turns tail and he comes home to Jerusalem. I think it was because they were, they'd changed their minds. He knew Cyprus. He'd got family that lived there. And they were, suddenly they changed their minds and they were going to Turkey. And maybe it frightened him a little bit. And he thought... I'm back off to Jerusalem and off he goes. So the next time they want to go on a mission, Barnabas says to Paul, I'll get John Mark and he can come with us. And Paul says, no way. He deserted us. He left us high and dry. When we needed a team out there, he walked. He abandoned us. We need somebody that's reliable. We need someone we can depend on. He's got no backbone. He's not coming. And so Paul and Barnabas have a massive argument about this. And they split. They don't speak for a long, long time. And Paul takes Silas and goes in one direction. And Barnabas takes John Mark and goes in another direction. John Mark was left behind because he was immature. You couldn't depend on him. 
He wasn't reliable. He got excited about the journey, about going to Cyprus. But when he got there, he didn't have anything built on the inside of him to sustain him. Therefore, Barnabas shouldn't have taken him. But that's a whole different story. I've often heard Pastor Tony say, get your passports ready. And it's ready. It's ready. But if we're immature and we've got nothing built on the inside of us, then that phone call will never, ever come. We can't draw back. Supposing we go somewhere with them, we can't run home and say, oh, it's a bit too hot there. I don't, I don't fancy Australia. They've got big spiders. That'd be my thing. <laughs> I don't fancy Australia. They've got big fat spiders. It's a bit too hot there. We've got to have some things built inside us. We've got, we can't preach to the nations if we've got no word built inside of us. Amen? Maturity is essential if we are to be used by God because our mandate is to then disciple the nations and take Zion outside of the doors. So there's two levels there. The reasons that we need to be mature. One is to build this house and the other one is to build the inside of us in order to take it out. It's got to move beyond the doors. Just going back to John Mark. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul is in prison in Rome and he's, in, he's going to die soon, he knows that. So he writes to young Timothy and he says, Do your best to come quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to, to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. So we see here that it's never too late to turn ourselves around. He'd grown up, he'd matured, he'd trained himself, he'd put some self-discipline, some sacrifice into his life, and now finally he was useful to the ministry of the church. If we are to be helpful to his ministry, then we have to live sacrificial, disciplined and obedient lives in order that we mature for Christ. It's all about him. The benefits are that we live better lives, but the whole purpose is so that God uses us to carry his message to the nations. Pastor Jonathan David defines the the mature Christian perfectly. He calls them the finishing generation. I love that phrase. The finishing generation isn't an age group. It's not gender specific. It's not age specific. It's those who have determined their course. It's those who have determined in their hearts that your will be done, not mine. It's those who have determined that I am going to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. And I'm going to finish strong. Notice the word determined. It means resolute, strong-minded, single-minded and focused. They will not be taken off course. The flesh will always try to hold us back, but the spirit man has to rise up and be stronger inside of us. The finishing generation have counted the cost and will not be stopped from finishing their course. Maturity gives the ability to take hold of everything that God is giving us to finish our assignment, both in the house and in the nations. And that's why we must mature in Zion, so that we will become a part of the finishing generation. Amen. 
And the last scripture I'm going to give you is from Galatians 2, verse 20. And I think this scripture encapsulates maturity perfectly. It can't be said any better. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. Right there is the definition of maturity. I have been crucified with Christ so that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Amen. Maturing in Zion. The word says that now we have crossed and we need to mature in it. I want to encourage you to take these things, these three dimensions that we spoke about this morning and give them a greater measure of responsibility in your lives. We have to take this thing forward. We know in this house that when God prophesies something, it happens. So the new food is going to come. It says that we've got to go, um, what, was the, what was the word there at the beginning? It says this is the next phase that the church is about to go through. So we can preempt. We can preempt that. God's already told us that that's the next phase that the church has to go through. So right now, we can begin to put some things in place in our lives so it doesn't take us as long, so that we get there quicker, so that we're on the move before God even needs us. Amen? Amen. Stand up with me, please, church. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information, go to www.thedreamcentre.co.uk.